Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 11th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Once again, reminding you that if you are near or in or around South Florida on April 6th, we will be doing a live version of this podcast in the late afternoon in Palm Beach. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast for more information. There will be three ways to attend. You can just come to the podcast. You can uh, level up and you can come to a meet and greet with us before the podcast, or you can join us for a VIP dinner after the podcast. Three ways to come, three price points, uh, three ways to support commentary, three ways to meet uh, the commentary community in South Florida and commune with like-minded people who have been listening to this podcast for I, we've been doing it for six years, but you know, our larger, our, our uh, by far, our our audience has you know has doubled or tripled in size since we started doing this daily, and uh, with with um, with COVID going from pandemic to endemic, uh, this is a chance for people to actually meet up in person with people like you who have found some uh, sanity uh, in the Commentary Magazine podcast. So that's commentary.org/live/podcast, where you will hear. Uh, along with me, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And well, not in Palm Beach, but making his first appearance on the podcast as a masthead member of commentary, as a contributing editor of commentary, Eli Lake. Fan Thank you so favorite. much for having me. Fan favorite back with us to discuss his landmark article now available at commentary.org, which is called The World Has Changed and We Must Change Along With It. So, Eli, uh, why don't you briefly summarize the um, the theme of your of your article and then we'll get to the specifics. Well, the theme of the article is a look at a long term strategy, no matter what happens. I wrote it not looking at the specific war in Ukraine, but sort of how the, what it means now that the mask has finally fully slipped, although we could argue that it's been slipping for 20 years with Vladimir Putin, and what that means for both the, for the international community, for what the U.S. military posture needs to be in the world, for our relationship with China vis-a-vis Russia, and I argue in that sense that uh, Russia and China are going to be in an alliance. Um, and also a sort of strategy for the medium to long term uh, for what is a new Cold War uh, and what I hope will be the uh, impetus to break with the autocratic world and how to support freedom movements and regain our moral confidence, um, you know, as we as we approach, you know, a sort of new geopolitical reality the the, the post Cold War era is over, we are in a new dangerous era, and we have to make a number of really important strategic decisions now to meet this challenge. I think it's important to say that when when we discussed your writing this article for the magazine, we had a conversation about were we going to be practical, like in the sense, were we going to talk about the realities on the ground, what we could do to shore up the Ukrainian military, how we could face down Putin at this moment, how we could shore up NATO at a time of trouble. And what we decided to do was lay out a kind of geopolitical strategy to, for the next 10 to 20 years, irrespective right. of, of this moment, and try to pull back and look down 30,000 feet and from the perspective of history 
so that, for example, you say flatly that the U.S. defense budget is going to need to be increased, I think, about uh, 40%, according to, we said we go up from about three, yeah, three and three quarters percent of GDP to about 5% of GDP. Right. At the, I said as a minimum. Right. Right. Now, what's interesting is, um, so it took the United States three years to double its defense budget uh, after the shocks of 1979, um, which was, you know, Afghanistan, Iran, Nicaragua, Soviet brigade in Cuba, um, and and the uh, Reagan came in with a promise to radically to increase the size of defense budget. And to Jimmy Carter's credit, he right, he, he got started the message. It. Yes, he did. But so from from in the seventy nine budget, we spent about one hundred and twenty two billion dollars, and in the eighty two budget, it was up to about two hundred and twenty six billion dollars on defense. That was three years. It took Olaf Schultz of Germany three days to right. double the German defense budget. To so commit to, to commit to double it. Yes. Well, yeah. Okay, fine. I mean, yeah, yeah. but but so it took three days, not three years, three days for the nature of the for the. Um, it's not that, you know, uh, Europe was sleeping and then, you know, it was awakened like a sleeping giant. Europe was an earthquake hit Europe. Right. And uh, and uh, they scrambled out of bed and went to stand in the doorframe or went into shelters or something like that. And then said, we're going to have to figure out ways to survive this earthquake and make sure that it doesn't bury us. That's right. And, and part of this is also looking at um, some of the hardships that the Western economies in the United States will incur as a result of some of the energy sanctions and other kinds of sanctions that the Biden administration has imposed and Europe has imposed, because we have to do a much better job of just fast tracking and, uh, you know, intensifying our efforts to create a sort of strategic economic separation. So rare earth metals, energy independence, these are the sorts of things that make it possible to punish the Russian economy without much blowback on our own economy, which we are not in a position to do because we have been living in this fantasy that we're all one global village. And eventually over time, the kind of rules of the international system will bind the Russia and China the way it binds us. And that's not the case. So we have to, like, it's just a conceptual break, but it requires a bit of preparation and it's not just a matter of increasing our defense budget, which of course we have to do. We have to prepare to fight two wars at the same time in the Pacific and, the, and in Europe. We have to prepare for the prospect that if we get into some sort of in, increased conflict with, with China, they will shoot down our satellites. So we have to be able to relaunch our satellites. We have to be able to prepare for the horrible possibility that a major infrastructure will be disabled through cyber attack and you know, we should be able to not just do what's called cyber defense, which we have been building up for 10 years, but prepare for the prospect that there might be no power for a day or two days, you know, in a major city. And what would that mean? And is there something, you know, kind of reviving a Cold War notion of civic defense? So there's a lot of these things that we need to prepare for now for this, what I call this break with the autocratic world, um, because, and it comes from the kind of 
you know, finally getting the message that it's not going to work. We're not going to be able to, you know, work with China on climate change while we compete with China on, uh, you know, the, the rights of the, its Uyghur citizens to survive or Hong Kong's uh, status under the 1997 agreement or things like that. We just have to accept that China and Russia are against us, Iran's against us, Venezuela, all of that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the Biden administration has, has not kind of acted in a way that they, they kind of understand all these implications, which was the impetus for, for writing the essay. Okay, so I'm ideologically sympathetic to every single thing you've written here, uh, Eli, but a <clears throat> concerning fact mm -hmm. is that it's easy for us to decouple from Russia because there's almost no financial exposure in the West to Russia. Over the last decade, their divestment has been the watchword. And everybody, anybody in market says, you know, all, all the stuff we're imposing on Russia right now isn't going to really have a tremendous impact on your statement, right? Because you don't have a whole lot of investments in a diversified portfolio that are in Russia. Not the same with China. China's a big deal when it comes to economic yeah. pressure. And you know that they're trying to create an alternative financial system to the one dominated by the West and the United States, and especially to undermine the, United, uh, the dollar as a reserve currency. And if you look at the world map of the people who are, are the countries that are really united on this, it looks exactly like Cold War lines, with the exception of the addition of the Warsaw Pact. It's North America, Western Europe, and the Pacific Rim. A lot of territory is still on the board here, and the, doubt, the outlines you're establishing um, suggest an economic competition that isn't defined by ideology, but rather market clout. And it's uh, the outcome of such a thing is in doubt. You're, you're leaving most of the planet on the playing field here. Um, and perhaps it's a new Cold War without as much of a military dimension, but it's a, certainly an economic competition and one that I don't know if we're especially equipped to fight if we have a bifurcated financial system. Okay, so uh, the obvious That's objection... Yeah, but let me let me just put it this way. The yeah. obvious objection to your to this conversation moving to China is why are we talking about China? You know, Russia's sure. invaded Ukraine. Why are we talking about China? And you mentioned, you know, that we need to have a two, we need to be able to fight a two-front war, um, which was American military doctrine until 2014. That the right. The presumption was that our, our military had to be designed in a way that allowed us the possibility of fighting two wars at once, meaning like, you know, the European theater and the Pacific theater in World War right. II. But that wasn't, that's not just because we want to like have a wildly lavish military with all, it is because of the very obvious possibility that in great war competitions, if Russia gets us in a position where we're pinned down dealing somehow with Ukraine, that China will then see an opportunity and will decide it wants to move on Taiwan, that we, that we, we live in a place in, we live in a world in which we're, we need to have planetary global reach and our military isn't really quite there anymore because we changed our warfighting doctrine. And we now have at least two major antagonists here uh, with differing interests, even though they may be in a loose alliance or come to be in a loose alliance, and they can play us, they, they can play us like a fiddle if they work in concert. Now you can then look at Ukraine and say, "Well, I don't know. That's not going to happen." Like, look, he's pinned at. Look how badly the Russian military is doing. This is discrediting to the Russian military. Yeah, we need to do something to make sure they get out of Ukraine. But I mean, they're they're going to be going home and licking their 
you know, licking their wounds and they're not exactly going to be adventurous. We don't really know that that's the case. It's only been three weeks. And yeah, they, they may be regrouping uh, the Russians. The you know, news overnight is that they are, they are apparently now really starting to adopt this um, urban leveling the cities strategy that we thought that they were going to start the war with. Right. <laughs> and uh, we don't know what China, what wisdom China is taking from what's going on. So I just wanted to say, like, I just to explain to listeners that there's a reason that we went to China so quickly, uh, even though the, the the thing that made the world change, as the was, piece's title says, was Russia crossing the border into Ukraine. Well, I would say a couple of things. One is I allow for the idea that it's we, we do Russia now in terms of economic separation and a lot of other things. And then we have to have an eye towards China, but we can still prepare you know, China has the ability to shut down our most critical industries through rare earth metals and minerals. So we could sh- we should start right now finding alternative supplies and forming a consortium of free countries where we cut China out of that. So they're not able to use that economic blackmail against us. Um, so there are things that we can do. I, I take your point, Noah, um, that when the dollar is the world's reserve currency, where our economy is in a stronger position. I just think at this point, I see the writing on the wall. The month before this invasion, there were joint military exercises in the Indian Ocean with India, China, and Russia. I would expect that the Russians will sell at a very steep discount their energy to China. China will offer it loans. That they're they're in a def- they're in an alliance. And we have to understand that they're in an alliance because they both share an interest in thwarting the things about the international order that we like that it, what it what it means when the u.s is the leader of the international order so i'm what i'm really saying is that the old way was well you know it's a it's a big system and we'll let these these rivals in and the, and it'll eventually they'll it'll tame them that hasn't worked they've undermined the international system so we have to for the sake of the resilience of that system we need to separate I, and that, I, I- Oh, yeah, I was just gonna say, I'm glad you said resilience, because when I read your piece, I had I had two questions. One is that you're absolutely right about China internationally. They are way ahead of us in terms of influence in Africa, for example. Yes, they have been absolutely. putting money and resources and cultivating alliances there for decades. And we need we have a lot of catching up to do there, particularly with in terms of some of the mining operations. But I was actually thinking in, on a broader scale, and you have a paragraph about this, you note that you don't think that that Trump is the leader for this new age and and you you know suggest a few reasons why but that for me was the real question is the the, the domestic political leadership because this is not isolationist America first that we're arguing here this is America yeah. resilient and for America to be resilient and for Republicans in particular to find someone who can craft a message that will appeal, well, you know, still appeal to some of the voters that Trump got, but expand a coalition that says, well, yes, we do have to be globally engaged. We're not going to bring all of our manufacturing and production back to the U.S. That's not feasible. That's not the world we live in. Um, those fantasies have to be put to rest, but those voters still have to be cultivated. So I'm wondering if there are any where you see from a political standpoint domestically that kind of leadership, someone who can embrace this sort of joint economic and strategic vision. So there, there are like the beginnings of good ideas on both sides. So the Biden people, in my view, kind of hypocritically and not seriously, but nonetheless have laid out this idea of democracies versus autocracies, which is a good concept. And it is something that a Demo- that, that the Biden administration or other democratic leaders can sort of build on. That's good. 
Trump, to his credit, began this kind of thinking strategically about these economic separation questions with supply chain issues in regards to China. Now, maybe it wasn't Trump himself. Maybe he did this as sort of leverage to get a better deal on aluminum or whatever. But he started it. Uh, he certainly went on a, you know, had a successful campaign, thanks in large part to people like Mike Pompeo, uh, in going after Huawei's efforts to try to build 5G infrastructure in Africa and other countries like that. So that is something that you can sort of say, hey, you know, Republicans and even Trump had some pretty good ideas here that we have to double down on. Um, you know, so there is, I think, a way to appeal to the Trump voters and talk about it in those ways. I think that Trump voters are also very much aware of the threat that China poses. I think most Americans are now very much aware of it after, you know, the spectacle of the Olympics and, and all the information about the genocide against the cultural genocide against the Uyghurs. So there is an opportunity for savvy, you know, leaders to emerge, hopefully. My well, look, own suspicion is yeah. that we haven't seen that leader yet, but I'd like, you know, that's what we need. Right, but Abe, um, all the polling over the last two weeks suggests that one path uh, that it appeared that Republicans might have been on uh, has now been closed down and that was the path of this kind of weird right-wing third way in which uh we would uh, ditch our old alliances in favor of some bizarre concatenation of hungary poland and russia co more culturally conservative uh not part of this you know woke uh what is it that madison cawthorn that blithering idiot you know said ukraine was a woke country and thuggish and evil because they were peddling woke doctrines um i don't even know if he can spell woke but fine uh <laughs> you know um and that this idea which is that you know there was a there's a new order in which you know we somewhere with strength and you know uh we we're not doing forever wars and we're blah 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 and all the polling suggests that republicans have either reverted or have never changed from their idea that uh, uh, Russia's a threat. 90% of Americans now have a negative opinion of Putin. Uh, that is, you know, there's no distinction between Republicans and Democrats on that. There's no distinction issue by issue down the line on, on taking a hard line uh, against Russia. And uh, I think at the very least, um, this idea, and I've been going at it very hard all week, but this idea that national conservatism represented the vanguard of, of, of um, conservative or Republican opinion uh, on these matters has been completely discredited. Yeah, my suspicion is that the NatCons, their ideas never had purchase among any large number of conservatives that it was all sort of in the realm of intellectual fantasy among themselves. What happened right. is the, the rubber hit the road in the form of Putin's invasion. And then, then we first got some sense of, of, of where the country was at. I think what's interesting about this, especially when I was hearing Eli just lay out the, the sort of the approach to a break with the autocratic world is that Unlike the Cold War, the, or, or what we what we can soon call the first Cold War, um, 
this time around, there's not a competing ideology that we're up against, right? It's not, it's not about communism here. I mean, the, the, the Chinese government, of course, is, is Chinese Communist Party, but, but it's, um, it's the bad guys. It's, it's autocrats and predators, uh, right. global predators. And um, it, it's, it makes, in some sense, for a sort of harder uh, uh, pitch, I think, um, because you don't, you don't, there's not the sort of bipolarity of uh, freedom and democracy versus, versus uh, communism. I mean, there, there's, there's, well, there is free, there's, there's, there's freedom versus unfreedom. Right. And strong state, weak state. That's ideological. Yeah, that's right. But, but <clears throat> one, one but of the he, things, right. what, but, but one of the things this opens the, the possibility up for, and this is something that a lot of people express concern over, and I think too much concern, but it's still something to keep an eye on, is that, well, you could say, okay, then let's, let's, uh, let's turn these tactics on, on countries I don't like. Uh, like, uh, first and foremost, uh, they'll say Israel, a certain segment, right? My response to this, by the way, is they've already turned these tactics on Israel. This yeah. is, they've, they've, they've been trying this, you know, for a, for a long to, to isolate Israel, to divest, to, to do all that. So I, I, I just want to put in a word here for saying, uh, don't let that stop us if i can add on something that there's nothing i the last section of the piece is about regaining our moral confidence but it could have easily been you know the case against wokeness or something i mean there is no reason why this strategy wouldn't address the very very serious legitimate concerns of many people who are on the right that you know our our elites have become too decadent and too focused on american sin and too divisive and too enamored with kind of high-tech censorship. I try to address that in the final section of the essay because that's a big part of it and that we sort of need an American renewal. So there is a way to sort of say, you know, you're not wrong about uh, some of these concerns that you have. And um, my main point is that instead of thinking about all of the people who you know, we're saying ridiculously sycophantic things about Putin a month ago and all of the people who were saying ridiculous things about, you know, the 1619 project. Here's an opportunity. The world's changed. Step over to, uh, to the, to the, you know, let's, let's greet the new reality together. Maybe it won't work. Maybe we're too divided, but there is like, we should have some grace here and say, everybody is welcome to kind of understand that large, serious challenge that we now have. And it doesn't mean that we're giving up on some of the, you know, the, the useful part of the critique, if you will, of the NatCons. I mean, there's a lot of what they say that's, that's just ridiculous, but, and is not for the moment, but the, you know, it doesn't, none of this means that we have to accept, uh, I don't know, like James Comey, like FBI or all right. the sorts of grievances they've had over the last five years. Right. One thing, though, I, I think is um, Abe's right that uh, our adversary uh, is no longer sort of ideological uh, in, in sort of the modern understanding that we have, you know, totalitarianism, which is a, a form of 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 government that is only, was only possible with the coming of sort of modern means of 
media and 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 an overwhelmingly dominant state state control, but was also with a with an ideological root, Nazism, fascism, communism, all of these are sort of universalist philosophies um, with a, you know, uh, that 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 have this, um, you know, Borg like desire to assimilate others and take them in and 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 sort of um, appropriate them and assume them inside inside their superstructure. So that's not really what's going on here. Uh, what's going on here is a more conventional or, you know, more his- historically conventional form of <clears throat> a neighbor is more powerful than another neighbor and then goes into the other neighbor and takes them over. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's the planet Earth until 1945 and and much of the planet Earth still after 1945. But um, but what's different is that our motivation uh, is part will the, the strength of the American motivation to resist is ideologically grounded in the American experiment. It's not just we, and, and somebody said this, like, we're not just doing this in order to preserve the rules-based international order. Right. An unfree country invaded a relatively free country. We can't allow that. Because if that yeah, becomes, we've, yeah, we've just we've talked a lot about the Nakons and we ha- really haven't talked about the extent to which, you know, the, the return of Bellum Romanum has, you know, exposed the extent to which these left wing narcissists with their happy fantasies and revisionist histories have just been engaged in this solipsistic navel gazing that has no relevance to the real world when it reemerges. It was a luxury to even have the opportunity to focus on a narrative that rendered us the bad guys. Well, they've always rendered us the bad guy. The interesting thing about the Natcons was that they they surfaced new leftist thinking on the right. I mean, the new left, uh, which arose in the 1960s, was based on the predominant predominating idea that the United States was the was a greater source of evil on the planet Earth than than the communists were. We 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 cooed countries. We you know, uh, we we led to predatory capitalism uh, and environmental catastrophes, uh, and we you know we we're just terrible and we're monstrous. And one of the one of the ways in which the Democratic Party got discredited nationally for 20, 25 years was the sense that it was connected to this ideology uh, in some fashion or other. And the Natcons have just adopted it in a corkscrew fashion that you know. Our moral depredations are cultural and religious and spiritual, not economic and and in terms of power politics precisely. Right. And so they've 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 adopted that. Yeah. So we have the we have the sixteen nineteen project on the one hand, um, and we have the uh, you know, I don't know what you would call it the sixteen nineteen intellectual project in Europe. On the NACON part, which is, you know, <clears throat> once the Enlightenment happened, everything went to shit. And that, that's not. And so, yeah, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, I think, Eli, you know, part of the part of the interesting historical, you don't quite go into this in the piece, but that we you have the left wing intellectuals who hate America and like spent the last two years talking about our original sin in 1619 and then. And predatory cops and everything that went on in the world that went wrong was our fault. And then you have 
this world that both this left-wing rump and the natcons both call neoliberalism or globalism um which was itself a fantasy and and yes. to which by the way a fantasy that neoconservatives from the get-go you know in the 1990s warned was leading us to a very dangerous place i mean i think about this in relation to china because as the globalists were saying or the sort of neoliberals were saying we need to go and invest as much money as we can in china to change their regime from within to you know to sort of like economic liberty will lead to political liberty that inexorable right and when we started the weekly standard in 1995 our first special issue was called was called china the threat um funnily enough last year we did a special issue of commentary called woke the threat it was called china the threat and it's it laid out systematically why this turn toward china was a danger was a terrible danger um they didn't you know uh, they they had concentration camps they had this lao guy uh, penal system uh they didn't observe the sanctity of contract they stole inter- intellectual property all of this remains as true today or truer as it did then. And we were also swamped by this kind of neoliberal fantasy that liberty comes from a cash register and not from an acceptance of an idea about the dignity of the individual and the rights of the individual as opposed to the interests of the state. Christine. There's a new, but there, so this is actually, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a section of, of Eli's piece that I'd love to hear him expand on a little bit. And that is a new challenge, a kind of different sort of culture war that, that I think Eli, you're arguing we're going to have to wage here at home. And that's that a lot of our elite institutions, a lot of our, uh, certainly our professional class and, and the kind of the people who still live that globalist vision, even if it, if, if we've seen the hollowness of it, um, are relying on the money of the yes. Chinese billionaires, the Russian billionaires, their children go full, pay full freight and give lots of money to our most elite institutions. They've been doing this for decades. That is now something that these institutions rely on. They are going to resist what you argue in the piece, which is that we need to we need to stop that. This is actually helping regimes that we now no longer can embrace as being part of this globalist vision. That's right. But the caveat is, and, you know, bar the children of elites of Russia and China from going to our universities and give scholarships to the children of dissidents right. to come to our universities. We didn't used to have the elites coming here exactly. with their money, right? The old Cold War didn't have that as a possibility. And now it's actually a functional reality. Well, right. They didn't and have it, that as a possibility because of the terror of the regime that those people would defect. That was and one the, of the, the reasons why, you know, if you were a child of the elite in the in the Soviet Union and you came here, uh, you know, to go to school, you were going to try to stay here by hook or by crook, like ballet dancers did. Anyway, no, that, that but that's exactly right. And that and that I say this, um, you know, in, in the in the section on international solidarity, but you know, our built-in advantage is that uh, the most talented citizens who have to live in a place like China or Russia or Iran would much rather live in Europe or America. And we are a magnet for genius fleeing tyranny. So we, that's a huge advantage and we need to have a a flexible approach that welcomes that. And it means, you know, in some ways we, we need major reform at institutions that kind of vet what, you know, who are these, 
you know, the, 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 the 20 year olds who come over here and, and spend three months in the United States, you know, learning about journalism or engineering or whatever, and then go back, those can no longer go to people that, you know, the regime favors so they can take whatever skills that, you know, they, they learn in a PhD program and enrich their own societies because China has outpaced us in certain technologies. We need to be aware of that and kind of have this sort of medium term strategy for creating a brain drain by welcoming the people who are fleeing those countries. Um, and I do think that that's possible. And it's something that, again, um, if we sort of accept the world has changed and this means that we're going to re-examine a lot of our priors that hopefully the anti-immigration NatCon types could kind of understand that that would be a very good thing and different than just simply welcoming these very corrupt gazillionaires to corrupt our own societies. Maybe it won't work, but that is, I'm, that's why I laid it out. I'm saying, all right, here's a new approach where we can, you know, my, my intention was to sort of try to build a unity consensus position on this stuff. Yeah, look, they don't want poor Asian Americans. They want rich, uh, you know, overseas Chinese. That's what they want. Yeah. They, want they want rich uh, members of the Chinese, um, you know, chi Chinese elites, and they favor them. And they, of course... Uh, disfavor, uh, you know, uh, Asian Americans who need to, who, who would also enrich these schools with their, with their hard work and their good yeah. values. Let's, let's take a pause here. And uh, let me talk to you about Novo. Uh, you've heard me talk about this. This is um, powerfully simple and innovative business checking. Uh, fortune favors the bold, the strong and the brave. And so if your business wants to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. That's Novo. Unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fees. It's customized to your business to save you time, free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses that have found the customizable business checking solution that admires and assists in their bravery. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash commentary. Plus, Commentary Magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, so as I say, it, it, the piece is not exactly utopian in, in, in model at all, because I think everything that you're proposing in it is not only realistic, but, um, but is, uh, was part of the sort of, um, you know, the American tool set uh, before the Cold War and something that we fought over very hard often to uh, to get to achieve some kind of consensus that never existed, by the way. You know, I want it's impo important to say that there is this fantasy that, oh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there was such a consensus that between the parties on how to, you know, we needed to resist the Soviet Union and we did blah, blah, blah. It's all that's all nonsense. Like these fight the fights over. American foreign policy, American projection of power, American resistance to Soviet advances and all that were unbelievably bloody and really nasty. And, uh, and you know, uh, people went to jail. People were pursued by special prosecutors. Like, this is no joke. Like, this is... So um, the fact that we're talking about this now and we may be ending, moving into a period in which 
we are going to have to have some very spectacularly ugly fights over how we move into the future uh, is something that people need to be prepared for. Uh, the ugliness, as I say, is largely now uh, the result of the kind of take no prisoners rhetoric that uh, people learn from Trump and the NatCons use and the 1619 Project people use to kind of scare and intimidate the you know people who the best who lack all conviction, you know, uh, as while while the others are full of while the worst are full of passionate uh, intensity and and I think that's an important element of this that if you really want to think about how to for America to prevail uh, and and have freedom of movement, freedom of action and 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 have a world that is more uh, friendly to our interests and our ideas, uh, you're going to have to be prepared for some pretty hard arguments uh, down the road. And we saw that this week. That's why I wanted to get to this. It's not even an argument, you know, an ideological argument. It's an argument, as I said yesterday, between kind of people who are living in the old world and people who are living in the new world that was created by the Russian move into Ukraine, which is this argument over the MiGs, the Polish MiGs, uh, that uh, the Pentagon ended up very harshly in, in, a, in a sort of almost unprecedented way saying uh, this proposal to transfer Pol Pol Poland's MiGs uh, to Ukraine uh, because there's no other aircraft that we could transfer to them because they don't know how to fly anything else um, is not tenable. Uh, whereas two days earlier, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, had said, we accept this, we're, you know, we're, we're here to help facilitate this idea. And then apparently the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs, Lloyd Austin, the defense, whoever said, are you insane? This is going to escalate. This is war, you know, da, 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 da. And um, it's interesting because it's like they didn't get the memo that the world changed. Now, maybe they're right that it's unnecessarily provocative or that the Ukrainians couldn't make that much use out of this aircraft uh, compared to the compared to the risk we were taking to involve ourselves this directly. Um, but I don't know. It's an interesting moment because yesterday Tom Cotton uh, and uh, a couple of other people had a press conference and said, what is this pusillanimity? You know, we said on Sunday, great. We said on Tuesday, this is not tenable and we'll destroy NATO. Um, which is it? Pick, pick, a, pick a side. Why are you being so weak? Like, why is Russia, why, 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 is, why, why is Russia controlling our responses to their depredations? What did you what do you make of all this? The MIG stuff? I think no, that there's a I, deeper I, I, question here. Yeah. Eli first. Which is, and I'll go. Eli okay. first. I met Eli and I said I first I said no, and then I said, Hey, because we have a zoom and I was looking at you instead of looking at Eli. And so I said no. I feel and so left I out. My head, I'm so left out. I that very <laughs> sexist to me. I really apologize. So it's like when you're looking for your kid's name. If you have more than one kid, you're like, shit. Yeah, blah, blah. Like that. Hey, you, you works. Up, hey, you. Yeah, hey, yeah. you. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so there's a deeper issue, which is that it's pretty obvious. Uh, we know that before the war, uh, the Biden administration believed that the Ukraine would lose in a few days. So they offered Zelensky, a, you know, helicopter. He said, I don't need a helicopter. I need ammunition. And it's now more than two weeks. The Ukrainians have obviously 
been fighting heroically. They have held on. The Russian military has shown that they have a lot of problems in their supply chain and all kinds of things. I think that there are that, that even though Putin has denied this now, that he is sending conscripts now to, to sort of backfill uh, his forces. So hasn't denied it. Now they've now they've admitted it, and they're lo- they're on the hunt for for the generals who did this. That if only oh, the czar knew what was happening in the uh, countryside, sort of thing. Right. Right. So okay. So my my thing is that instead of asking questions about what we can't do, now we should be looking at what is it that we can do to increase the odds of Ukraine succeeding and not just succeeding eventually as a sort of insurgency, but succeeding maybe in possibly repelling the Russian invasion. And uh, I'm not, it's by no means assured. The odds are still very much stacked against them. The Russians have now proven that they are willing to destroy cities. It's horrible. But if the Ukrainians are willing to fight, why aren't we doing everything in our power to try to help them? And I would even go up to an including humanitarian corridor, uh, electronic warfare against Russian anti-aircraft and fighters, or even a no-fly zone at this point. Um, Because I think we have to sort of begin asking ourselves, what is the consequence if Putin pulls this off and wins? And what will that mean for the NATO alliance, because President Biden has already committed to a shooting war with Russia if Russia attacks a NATO ally. So is the argument that, in fact, the NATO alliance is so strong that Putin has been deterred? So that obviously would beg the question, well, then why didn't we let Ukraine and Georgia in 12 years ago? Or is this a test as to whether or not he will determine that NATO is strong enough to deter him. And if that's the case, then are we just delaying the shooting war with Russia later on a favorable terms for Putin? And at this point, I think we cannot allow ourselves to be paralyzed by Putin's nuclear saber rattling. We have nuclear weapons too. And I would add one more point to this. Vladimir Zelensky and everybody knows that part of Russian military doctrine is that they will use tactical nuclear weapons in the battlefield um, if, the, if, their, if their conventional forces are losing. Okay, he's willing to accept that risk. That's a horrible risk to Ukraine. So he's willing to accept the risk, but weirdly we're not because I don't think that the strategic nuclear exchange is really on the table at this point. I think what we're really worried about is a tactical use of a tactical and nuclear weapon. And what are we doing to try to uh, deter that? Because he may use a, ne- a tactical nuclear weapon for all we know, or a chemical weapon, as you guys talked about yesterday, uh, you know, anyway, if he's losing. So let's try to win at this point. I think that, that Ukraine is, is, is very much in play in a way that, that two weeks ago, we didn't think it would be. So if that's the case, we have to recalibrate how we do all this. So the MIG question, which you know may or may not make a difference, is a subset of that larger point. Why aren't we doing everything possible right now to advantage Ukrainians? Because we have a strategic opportunity and it looks like we're probably going to have to fight them anyway if, 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 if Putin succeeds. Okay, I'm going to respond to this and I beg the indulgence to have the runway necessary to make all the, sure. the, the points. John, you said that this is a 
ADBC moment, that this is the, the dividing line between old world and new world. It is not. It is an expression of the world as it always was, revealing to us that all the fantasies, the happy pieties, the diplomatic niceties, the institutions that we created don't mount a hill of beans when faced with a big display of hard power. A lot of people saying, why are we scared? Why are we cowed? Why aren't we responding to Russia in a way that they, they get to escalate? We don't get to escalate. That strikes me as absolutely insane because they are scared. Listen to what they're saying and listen to what they're not saying. What Moscow has said very explicitly is that MiG transfers that originate from an airfield in NATO crossing into the battle space will be escalatory. And why? Because they could be engaged. They could be engaged and could be perceived as a response from NATO and would engender a response from NATO, which is all the Russian military command wants. They want this to be a conflict with the West. They don't want to be fighting Ukraine. They're doing a terrible job at it. They have battle plans to, to take right off the shelf to fight NATO, and that would do quite a bit to unite the Kremlin in what is already a very fractious conflict. We're fighting over a particular weapons platform when we're not talking about the many, many, many weapons platforms and, and munitions that we are flooding into this country overtly without any de uh, deniability. And Russia hasn't said anything about that. Why? Because A, they lack the tactical ability to interdict those uh, shipments. And second, they would have to fire first. They would start a war with NATO. If they were to interdict these shipments, they would be killing NATO soldiers, NATO, NATO officers. Um, the alternative that is being bandied about here with this one weapons platform, which has overtaken the debate in a way that is outsized, disproportionate to its relevance, is that we would have to fire first. We would be engaged because we perhaps would be fired on, it would be a response, but nevertheless, we would be engaging Russian assets, especially with a no-fly zone, but not even a no-fly zone. Let's take the no-fly zone off the table. Let's just say it's just a transfer. Nevertheless, this transfer could engage, and it could engage originating from NATO, which has a cascading escalatory potential that we can't necessarily stop or don't know how to stop. As far as the tactical nuclear weapons go, yes, Russian military doctrine is, is first use, and escalate to de-escalate, and we should all be very scared about that. But I'm less scared than I was uh, a week ago because the tactical nuclear response could be the worst possible response from the perspective of the Kremlin if they're students of self-deterrent theory. The theory being that the madman who uses nuclear weapons first cannot be allowed to have a strategic arsenal. And it could trigger, now this is how the Kremlin's thinking. I don't think we would actually do this, but the Kremlin might be thinking that we would trigger a strategic response, a counter force response to neutralize their ICBM capacity, leaving them vulnerable, leaving their cities depopulated, leaving them only, or not their cities depopulated, leaving them only with a second strike capacity, which wouldn't disable our strategic arsenal and would leave them vulnerable to a population strike, to a counter value strike. So they would lose a nuclear war. That's how, that's how the thinking would go in the Kremlin. Okay, wait, okay, now. I'm going to make the same objection to you today that I made to you yesterday when we had a similar conversation. So they say, don't you fly a plane from Ramstein because that's escalatory. Um, why do they get to dictate that? It's the only thing they get to dictate. They haven't established any escalatory pattern here because we are actively arming and attacking and killing Russian soldiers. If they, if they wanted to to really engage with NATO, they would be drawing a much broader red line. They have one little teeny red line, which is one I think we should absolutely be observant of because they're talking, and again, it's just about who fires first. This would compel the possibility of engagement via a NATO asset and NATO asset engaging a Russian asset first. You just laid out, you just laid out a scenario 
according to which the Russians have to worry that we would engage their strategic nuclear arsenal militarily and possibly involve in, you know, strike second because they would use a tactical nuclear weapon. So we would not be using first, but that we would destroy them. This is all theory and it's a horrible okay. theory, okay. but it's a horrible fortunately, theory. but it is nevertheless the, the essence but of they, self-deterrence. Theory. Right. But they will shoot down an America. They will shoot down a MIG. They will announce that they are now at war with NATO because Polish MIGs flew from Ramstein Air Force Base. I, I don't understand the logic that like that they can't abide, but maybe they'll shoot off a nuke. I mean, I, I that's what you know, you know, you, I granted you're saying you're less scared about that now than you were before. I'm listening to what the Kremlin is saying. I Yeah, but so what? The Kremlin's full of shit. Who knows what the Kremlin means or doesn't mean? And, I mean, and also, you know, I would say you're, that you're, they, you're, stra- you're like taking, you're doing the Straussian analysis of what they didn't say, which means that that is what no, is Kremlinology. That's, that's where we're back to. They're not, well, no, but Kremlinology itself, as it turns out, a lot of Kremlinology was horseshit also. I'm sorry to curse so much, but we, we spent 20 years like reading tea leaves about the Kremlin. And it turned out that basically what they were doing in the open was stuff that we understood they were doing in the open. Kremlinology well, I, was a was it was a form of it was like the soothsayers and Bartholomew and the Ublek. I mean, they you know, there, there was a lot of this. Oh, look, we see a picture, there's a photograph and someone standing in the, you know, on third to the right of Brezhnev and not fourth to the right of Brezhnev. That obviously quite means simply. That, he, that now the now the security services are more in favor than the, you know, than the than the interior. Correct. And we're watching t- Russian television programs to know what they're thinking in the, in the Kremlin. That's that's literally what's going on now. Quite simply, who fires first is what matters here. The notion that we're not doing everything we possibly can is false. We're expanding the terms of engagement in a way that the Cold War never saw. And the notion that we're cowed or scared. That's not true. We sent Stinger. That's not true. It was absolutely deniable. We sent, we sent Stinger missiles to Afghanistan yes, so, that the, so that the Mujahideen could literally blow up Soviet helicopters and Soviet aircraft. Yeah. Those were American weapons used to kill and literally Soviet everyone soldiers. who you only knew don't you have to read the book just go watch the movie charlie wilson's war to know the degree to which we went out of our way to make sure this was deniable it was never right, deniable right. i was no, there no, i was there charlie you were a kid no everybody knew that we were arming the mujahideen right it was uh, there was no there was there was and no everybody knew more, that the we soviets were arming the Viet Cong, but it was deniable okay noah to whom hold on but in diplomatic has, circles. Don't you no, think, it wasn't deniable. Nobody denied. Nobody really we went denied it. Absurd lengths. I didn't study those for 10 years not to know about the absurd lengths we went yeah, to. Yeah, but I was there. Deniable. I lived through it. Everybody knew that they were we were arming the Mujahideen. It was part of the congressional budget. Right. And it we had to filter budget. them through different yeah, we had to filter them through different nations so that they didn't have an origin point. We had to take out certain yeah. uh, components so that they wouldn't yeah. be captured. They were still our they were our missiles. In this case, what we'd be doing is we would be allowing Polish weaponry to go to Ukraine from an American base. Now, again, I guess it's predicated on your idea that this is a new world. I don't think the Kremlin thinks this is a new world. I think they're acting like it's a very old world. No, no, I'm saying we don't. They're acting like it's an old world and we're acting like it's an old world. I'm saying the Joint Chiefs of Staff are like, we can't engage the Russians this way. They're going to get mad. It's like we're beyond the Russians getting mad. We're mad at them. They're the they they have done something insanely and dementedly and destabilizingly aggressive. 
And we're not supposed to be standing here going, oh, we might get them mad. Then they're going to say that we're escalating. Well, screw them there. We wouldn't be escalating it. They're calling it escalatory. Giving them planes is no different from giving them tanks or ground stuff. That's actually true. Eli, uh, why don't you adjudicate here? Well, I, I just wanted to say that there there's a lot of things that Putin has said since the start of the war that sounded like red lines. Remember, he said any ally of Ukraine that intervenes is going to have terrible consequences. We clearly have been intervening. He, you know, had he twice, maybe three times threatened some sort of nuclear escalation in terms of the alert status. There were all kinds of messages that didn't he, he call. Didn't he call sanctions an act of war as he well? Did at one point, called sanctions an act of war. So I'm just saying that Putin is trying to do everything he can to deter anything from the West to support Ukraine at this point. And I I agree with you that it hasn't we haven't we, we are supporting Ukraine, but we should be kind of doing more of it. And the MIG thing for me, I sort of agree that like, I don't know if 29 Soviet era MIGs are going to make much of a difference, but why aren't we sending aircraft batteries that are more effective? Why are we trying? We're actually trying to as late last night, we're trying to infiltrate Soviet era S S uh, into the country because we can't put Patriot missile batteries into the country because we have to operate them ourselves on the ground. Exactly. So I'm saying like these are uh, that, these are things that we actually have to do in order to contain this conflict. The objective is to contain the conflict, not just yeah, but, to fight okay, Russia. OK, OK. But this gets back. This gets to Abe. This is where I want to go with this. OK, so this gets to this, which is I brought this up, not because I, I know the strategic value of those Polish MiGs, because I don't or I don't know, you know, how much damage could be done by them. It's because there was a public dispute within the Biden administration where some the person who said we're going to do whatever we can to help the Ukrainians and this is a generous offer from the Poles and we're going to help was was slapped down in public by a different department. Now, there's a classic, you know, talk about the old world, like fights between the Pentagon and state on, you know, on, on how vigorously to contest things is, you know, as old as the days long. It's why the National Security Council was brought into being, and obviously Jake Sullivan is a very weak national security advisor because this all got out of his hands. Uh, and the thing is that not, none of this should ever have been public or seen in public, um, and it was. And but I mean, I think it reveals something to us about how we're feeling and what's going on with the leadership that is conducting the war. And uh, but this it, interesting. It, yeah, go ahead. Abe, I mean, sorry. I mean, I mean, the main reason it shouldn't have been conducted in public is because it reveals something to the Kremlin about us exactly and, and, right yeah i mean so uh, uh i mean this gets to eli's point about w- what it means if putin gets away with this and particularly what it means if putin gets away with this not because he engaged with uh an array of western nations and lost the battle but if he gets away with it because we didn't engage militarily I think that is in, in particular the issue here. Right. Christine, let, let's let's take this to the realm of public opinion, because this is ultimately one of the drivers. This will be one of the drivers of the way things works or world public opinion. Uh, we're seeing these pictures. We're seeing Kharkiv leveled. We're seeing, you know, the outskirts of, of Kiev 
being being sort of destroyed as the Russians regroup around Kiev. We're seeing these horrible pictures and these stories about maternity hospitals and children's hospitals and no food and you know uh, the water is getting is going to start getting uh, poisoned and and all of that. And what do you think? The American people, according to this Wall Street Journal poll today, 89% of the American people report that they are following the news in Ukraine closely. Again, I think an unprecedented number. I don't know that we've ever seen the, the are you following X closely? I don't know that we've ever seen a number that high. And I'm sure it's not true, but it doesn't matter. They, they're saying it because they think they should say it, let's say. But let's say the number is too high and it's only 69% are, are observing it very closely. Doesn't this increase rather than decrease the pressure politically the longer this goes on? Because it's going to get worse and worse for the for Ukrainian civilians. Possibly, because I think um, there's something interesting to the to the number of people uh, claiming to be following this closely. I actually don't doubt that. I mean, that seems very high. But think about how many people were reporting following the COVID pandemic closely for the last couple of years. People are actually much more um, primed to be following a crisis now than they were a few years ago. Uh, and in some sense, I, and I've actually seen this among friends of mine, Ukraine has replaced the crisis following mentality that they had about COVID for the last few years. So there's that. The concern now, of course, and we see this speaking of crisis, we see plenty of people on social media claiming that, you know, the pregnant woman dragged out of the rubble was a crisis actor. And and, you know, this is all fake. You're buying into the propaganda. Social media has created creates an instant vacuum where if the leadership of a nation, in this case, uh, the Biden administration, doesn't have a communication strategy that is tied very closely to its policymaking it's going to that void will be filled by misinformation. It'll be filled by propaganda. It'll be filled by a lot of things that you actually don't want if you want uh, to unite a country around a cause. Zelensky knows this. He's been doing it since day one. He's been doing it incredibly well. It, it is people been saying it's the first social media war. But in some sense, what what the Ukrainians have been doing in terms of communicating, not just with their own people, but with the world has been very effective. Biden has been incredibly ineffective. The 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 out in the open squabbling amongst his you know, between state and Pentagon, the, the strange things that, you know, the one-offs his press secretary will say, and then they'll have to smooth things over the next day. People are kind of confused. And I think actually that does explain why they're so tuned into the news. It's kind of like, what's going on? I still, and I've said this many times since the Ukraine crisis broke out, he needs to communicate to the American people what his own strategy is. And I still, I follow the news closely. I don't really know what he's doing. And that's where the big thing comes in because people are like, do something, tell us, show us, describe to us what you're doing. And as Noah pointed out, a lot of stuff's going on behind the scenes that they can't discuss, but they still need a message. He is so, being buffeted by events, but Eli brought up the humanitarian corridor. And I think that is a live issue. NATO engaging is not going to happen. It's off the table. It's purely academic speculation. It's at this not point. off the table. It is off the table. It's not a off the humanitarian table. corridor, however, is not necessarily off the table, especially if what we are thinking we're going to see in Kiev is what we're going to see, what we're seeing in Mariupol, for example, already now and uh, Chernev and, and um, half a dozen other cities and towns. Uh, Look, if, there's if that no really such does, thing. There's no such thing as a humanitarian corridor. You know what a humanitarian oh, corridor Berlin is? Berlin airlift. A no-fly zone. No, when the airlift to... took place, there was no war going on when there was a Ber when the Berlin airlift. Exactly, which is why this this debate is going to be very heated and complicated, and it's going to happen sooner rather than later. I think I know, we need to mention why... yeah, we'll go ahead. one thing here, because <clears throat> there's a bit of sort of breaking news yesterday. Um, 
that speaks to Biden administration's confusion on this and the mixed messages and the new world, old world paradigm. Uh, the, the talks in Vienna over the Iran nuclear deal are close to collapse now because Russia, our go-between, our go um, is, is demanding trade exemptions uh, entirely separate from, from the deal. Uh, itself, by the they way, they want trade exemptions, and they don't want to flood the market with Iranian oil. Right. Anyway, I, I, the re, I, it's an important point because it is, it is the, it is. This is where you have the thing where there are these people obsessed with their own little corner of things. That is the people who are negotiating the Iran deal, um, who, uh, and no one's told them otherwise because for whatever reason, and um, you know, basically three weeks ago the Iran deal was dead. We can't strike a deal with Russia as a guarantor when we're at war with Russia, which I granted, we're not in a shooting war with Russia. We're effectively on the other side of a war with Russia. And then we're going to make some massive deal allowing uh, Iran access to $100 billion worth of of, of, uh, lines of credit uh, with Russia as the guarantor that they are not going to nuclearize more. That can't happen. That can't happen. But Robert Malley is sitting in Vienna imagining that it can happen. And that's where the like some of the Biden administration should have said, all right, that we can't, you know, let's leave. We're, we're leaving today. We can't. The, our whole strategy was based on the Russians. We're done. And they can't make that transition. So if they want an off the shelf strategic vision for the future that they can just take and adopt and as their own and change American politics for the better and create new alliances uh, of, uh, of uh, ideological interest between left and right and shuffle the decks uh, in an entirely new way. They should go to commentary.org and read Eli Lake's article, The World Has Changed and We Must Change With It. I don't imagine that will happen, but stranger things have happened. And maybe I'm gonna, we'll so I'll send it to Jake. And send it to Jake. Right. Tony and Tony. Uh, anyway, Eli, uh, welcome to commentary. Welcome to the Thank master you. as a contributing editor. Everybody go and read Eli's piece. Uh, the rest of the April issue will be up forthwith. Abe, I don't know when. Uh, I, I figured Monday. Yeah, Monday. Okay. Uh, it's uh, fantastic. And uh, everybody have a great weekend. So for Abe and Noah and Christine and Eli, I'm John Thank Puzzle. you. Keep the candle burning.